It is summer 2023, and once again, millions of people will join the downtown core in the annual Pride Month festivities, including the Pride Parade. Millions will be in the march or surrounding it this year, as we celebrate the love that we share and the call for human rights to be protected across the world. But the last three Pride Parades I attended, I got heat stroke, and I think it's best if I celebrate this year in a way I'm familiar with, indoors and between bookshelves. Welcome to The Rooster Crows, a podcast about life and death and everything in between. I'm your co-host, Roberta Howie. The LGBTQ and Two-Spirited History of Canada is not a recent phenomena. As long as humans have been around, a number of them have had different identities across the gender and sexuality spectrums. Today, we visit the home of a small slice of that history and meet the organization that is hard at work to make sure queer Canadians are remembered and our stories are told. Welcome to the Archives. For those who are listening, it's spelt Archives, A-R-Q-U-I-V-E-S. It is the largest collection of LGBTQ and two-spirited historical media in Canada, including pamphlets, magazines, books, letters, songs, and poetry, and some artifacts that can't be easily preserved in a box or a bookshelf, but have still earned their place in queer Canadian history. The archives are housed on an unassuming house on Isabella Street, with the pride flag waving in the front and signs reminding people to wear a mask and that they need to be calling for an appointment by the doorbell. I visited in winter, in full disclosure, and when I walked in, it was covered entirely with boxes. Every square inch that could be used had archival boxes and bankers boxes with carefully written labels. It was chaos, but controlled chaos. They were in the middle of digitizing their materials so it would be accessible online to anyone interested. Daniel Payne, I'm a reference archivist here at the archive. I started, oh, last summer, so the summer of 2022 and i immediately fell in love with this place it's an organization that is built on love the love of people you know that are chronicled collected within this collection and the love and passion and dedication of our volunteers who built this from scratch i i I sat down with daniel payne the reference archivist in his office, where he was able to show me just a handful of the material that they have. If you were on a quest and needed a guide to tell you where to go and how to get there, Daniel is that guide. While one team is working on collecting and storing the collection safely, Daniel is who you ask about finding certain materials and can help anyone who's interested to get their hands on anything from pamphlets from the 40s to posters in the 80s to recipe cards from the 60s. I think this sort of goes into my, this is a lowball question to toss your way. I think of like the Toronto archives, that there mm-hmm. are large sort of generic historical societies. Mm-hmm. Why do we mm-hmm. feel the need to preserve the LGBTQ two-spirited mm-hmm. history here yeah. when, you know, I could go to the reference library mm-hmm. and I find stuff mm-hmm. there. 
is there a reason that we want to preserve mm -hmm. it specifically yeah. here compared to sort yeah. of generic history? Yeah, it's true. I think it's changed over time, but at the outset, 50 years ago, um, in 1973, when the archives was founded, uh, emanating from the Body Politic magazine. So that's a landmark publication, started publishing in 1971, and they were chronicling events from the lesbian and gay and bisexual community from coast to coast to coast. They quickly realized that there was something going on. There was a movement happening. So people in Moose Jaw and Prince George and Truro and Nova Scotia were having these small little events and they thought they were isolated. They were the only ones. They quickly realized through the Body Politic magazine, there's a groundswell happening coast to coast to coast. So um, the founders of the Body Politic magazine realized that these histories are not being saved anywhere. In fact, they're being expunged, they're being eradicated, they're not being collected by standard archives or libraries. We're not getting publications through standard publication forums. So they realized we need to maintain and store this material so that we can build our own histories, our own sense of understanding of ourselves. Um, so from those beginnings, um, we were able to create a collection that gave us a public culture. Um, maybe at this point, do we still need to have that isolated, siloed sense of identity? Well, I don't know. When you look at what's happening in the States right now with the movements um, banning drag performances, uh, the censuring of transgender communities. We need this now more than ever so that we can show our history and not just through, you know, a visceral, to, to embed it in, in documents of activists, of artists, of creators from the last 50 years, if not hundreds of years. So I think it is really critical that we maintain our independent voice. And we do that through <laughs> being funded almost entirely through the 2S LGBTQ plus community. We will get government grants to for special projects, for internships, but we want to main independ maintain independence of how we collect, what we collect, and what programs we offer. Many archives of our community archives of our ilk will start out with great intentions. Eventually, they'll get subsumed by a university. It's great. You get amazing funding. <laughs> but what ends up happening? All of a sudden, you know, the university starts looking at your collection development policy and micromanaging that. It starts pulling apart your collection. So, oh, you've got AV materials. We'll put those in our media comments. Oh, you've got artifacts. We'll put that in the art collection. All of a sudden, it pulls apart all of these things that are needed to understand the visual and material culture of a community. And they're, yeah, and then they end up become fragmented. And then ultimately, the worst thing that happens is that they stop collecting. And the minute that happens, the archive is frozen in time and essentially becomes what you might consider a dead archive. This concept of 
collecting. Uh, in a way, it's a little easier for us in an archive because we preserve the original objects. We try desperately not to get rid of things. Libraries don't have to worry about that. If you can find an old newspaper from 1910 in digital format that will be accessible to not just the one person looking at it at that hard copy one at a time, but if you can have dozens and numerous people accessing a digital version, then the library's like, bring it on. We're all about access. Archives are about preserving. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to make those same really heartbreaking decisions about whether to get rid of these old objects. We keep them. Now, yeah, finding the space is brutal. Um, so we're doing everything in our power to do that. We have two remote storage areas as well as this facility at 34 Isabella that is ram jam full of boxes and materials from the basement to the attic. It, it looks like everywhere you go, working, you can yep. swing your arm around yep. and come across yep. a pile of boxes. Yep. And, like they're well organized, very labeled, mm. like everything has a place yes. somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. It, it is definitely, it, the material has grown, which in mm -hmm. some ways is mm -hmm. fantastic because mm -hmm. like people are still contributing, like yeah, unmasked. Yeah, happening as we speak. Um, so we are really open, uh, you know, we're pro perhaps a little too lenient in what we take in, but we just feel like we need to uh, take the materials in now because history, popular culture, visual material culture disappears so quickly. So um, we need to be very accepting. All good media systems, there is mm -hmm. a method to the madness. Yes. Where there's yeah. more madness, there is more method mm -hmm. involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because access is key. Um, even though I said libraries are focused primarily on access, archives are as well. Because why do we collect these things? So that people can access them and learn from them. But yeah, our starting point is preserving the material. So if we do have an old newspaper from 1910 that's kind of falling apart, we don't want people using it on a daily basis. So we will digitize it in order to provide access, but actually in essentially in order to preserve that, the integrity of the original. So. All of this just shows the importance of mm -hmm. preserving that history. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious as to who are the people that come and mm. see this. It's mm -hmm. not just oh, like yeah. historical nerds like myself yeah. who could sit yeah. in this room for yeah. hours, yeah. but it, it sounds like there's a yeah. little bit of everyone that wants to come yes. in. Yeah, definitely. Um, all walks of life um, from people that are just, you know, kind of pursuing their own, what you might call autotelic interests. They've got this um, impulse to do a research project and we fully welcome that. Um, we have people coming into um, as visitors to town who are curious about this place they've heard about and they just want to see what's going on. Um, we had a, a young uh, lesbian couple come in from Buffalo um, last year and, you know, through the pandemic we did have to close down and we're gradually reopening through appointment only. So, you know, they were a little concerned that they just kind of wanted to see what was going on. So they felt that word appointment for researchers was 
a little daunting. And I said, no, 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 come in. I'll pull everything we have on Buffalo. Well, um, they came in and they just had a riot. They just loved looking through these materials. And I strongly suspect this was kind of their first trip together as a couple. And the one was trying to book things that would really impress her girlfriend. And I just teared up when I saw them, you know, having such a great time with our collections. They're it is the classic lesbian cliche. You mm -hmm. go on a first date, you get a U-Haul, you go a deep dive yeah. into your lesbian history. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. If that is, if you're looking for yeah. a date idea, I... just throw it out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, from that level to, you know, the more intense uh, academic researchers, um, we have people working on their PhDs, doing in-depth research. Um, we support all um, levels of research. Many of our volunteers here are researchers unto themselves um, and have published extensively on our collection. And I'll note Elspeth Brown as a really key researcher who's used our collection to really um, uh, enrich uh, you know, uh, the, our understanding of what archives are, what our community is, and how best to use the archive to build a sense of identity and knowledge of ourselves. What are some of the things that make it into the collection? I see some old newspapers mm. and newsletters and magazines. Yes. Is there... Is that sort of the bread and butter of the collection, or is there... Oh, um, bread and butter. Uh, I, I mean, as an archive, really what we want to focus on primarily are um, primary documents. So we're collecting the personal papers and effects of notable researchers, of artists, of everyday people living through history. Um, we feel that through these documents that were used to build lives and to live a life, they are worthy of maintaining and using to study. So we really focus on doing that. We have probably about, you know, over 200 full collections. So when we do get a personal collection in, we call it a full. And we subdivide it into series oftentimes using the structure organization that the creator used for their own personal purposes, but also merged with our understanding of queer terminologies and also archival practices, best practices. And then we have individual files within a series. So really, you know, that ultimately is our bread and butter. But we understand that, uh, you know, queer culture throughout history has had to rely on so many different ways to express themselves from clothing, from um, pamphlets, flyers, broadsheets, posters. So we collect all of these materials and buttons, I should say. Our button collection is <laughs> one of the <laughs> largest in the world. Um, so uh, all of the things that were used to build visual and material culture um, and we have very careful elaborate ways of organizing all these things so that we can store them and make them accessible. Uh, we have a full library collection of 23,000 titles. Um, and we also do have a monograph collection where we treat like a pamphlet, a government document, a report, 
a flyer as a book and we organize it that way and catalog it and make it accessible. Most libraries will stay away from these ephemeral things, which are oftentimes gray, called gray literature, because they're too hard to deal with and they require original cataloging and they don't fit on shelves. But for us, throughout our history, these informal publication routes were the only um, forum platform for a platform available to us um, to express our own um, voices so so we're collecting that um, and then yeah we've got tiaras and stiletto heels and drag outfits you name it so <laughs> all of that just sounds awesome and just the image of seeing old newsletters from mm -hmm. 1910 mm -hmm. and the broadsheets that yeah. are out in the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. and the drag outfits mm -hmm. that come around during uh, the entire time, yeah. but especially yeah. the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And yeah. then sort of seeing how it goes from really almost code and mm -hmm. secretive, because it was illegal, mm -hmm. to public and mm -hmm. like almost corporate sponsored, mm -hmm. with just how quickly it goes yeah. from there. And like it, it, it's an awful lot to see yeah. that change yeah. that happen yeah. over the decades. Yeah. Yeah. And to know that we had a hand in building that movement, you know, I, I, not a lot of, you know, people have heard of us, but they don't know a hundred percent of what we do, even though we've been around for 50 years. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, um, you know, need to archive, uh, document, our transition from intensely private circles, meetings within individual homes, drag parties where you pulled the curtains closed tight and had secret code words, passwords to get in, to gradually opening up, taking over maybe a hotel space that's known to be gay to a public um, uh, space has been a very careful fraught process but places like the archive has allowed us to you know kind of get a roadmap to navigate our way and it is interesting that you talk about the corporatization now actually we're sort of yes yeah, sort of trying to evaluate what's going on now in this intensely public world that we're in um tim mccaskill an early um activist and a uh, member of AIDS Action Now and the whole ACT UP movement in the 1980s has recently uh, written a book called From Homophobia to Homo Nationalism. Mm -hmm. And what he's done is chronicled this whole process of coming out, celebrating the rainbows, um, but also critiquing it at the same time and saying, what have we lost through this process? So now I think, you know, that's part of the strong role of our archive is to maybe regain our understanding of what we're trying to do through this rights movement. And to maybe, you know, be a check to this unfettered capitalism that seems to be um, filtering into our society. Especially as I'm even thinking of from an education perspective on it, where mm. you have, like, for, if I'm honest, I went to school in Toronto, mm -hmm. I was at U of T for my undergrad, mm -hmm. unless if you specifically sought out that history, it wasn't taught to you. Now that we're having this conversation mm -hmm. on what does it mean to openly talk about the LGBTQ community in mm -hmm. church, in 
uh, schools and churches and businesses and communities Mm -hmm. and having people realize that it's just always been there. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's a major part of our mandate through why we collect these objects. And I should say that we actually collect a lot of um, oral histories as well, um, because, uh, you know, our culture was so underground, we weren't able to publish about it. Um, really, oral histories are the only way that we can really uncover what was happening at these earlier time periods. So we're really active in that area. We've posted a lot of them online um, that are accessible through our um, online digital exhibition. So I encourage everyone that's listening to this podcast to explore those and really get to know them. As a just a personal random question, is there mm-hmm. a current archive mm-hmm. material right now that you either love yeah. or that you're like, I need to, I, I want to like shout it from the rooftop that this thing is here and it's just so oh, it's so cool. Oh, that's so hard. I know it's a um, bit like asking which one is your favorite yeah, child, but <laughs> right now, which one is the uh, favorite? <laughs> I should, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> cheat and do two. Violates. I mean, the one that's um, uh, just immediately. Uh, stood out for me when I first started working here on my first day. I saw the Inspire Award um, for Lifetime Achievement uh, that was given to the transgendered uh, uh, singer Jackie Shane. So if you're not familiar with Jackie Shane, get to know her. Uh, she came to Toronto possibly in the 19, uh, in 1959 through to 61. There's some discussion over that. But by 61, the early 60s, she had made her presence known in the community. Um, she's a transgendered woman, um, played with gender norms intensely. Some people thought she was a woman dressing as a man, trying to dress as a woman. Um, but yeah, so she just played with all kinds of um, gender norms and was confident about it and sang about that. Um, because she was so talented, she immediately got, got a following and was, um, you know, singing at, at all the bars on Young Street at the time, really lively music scene. Um, and there were lineups to get into her places. So we're talking Toronto the Good in the 1960s. <laughs> and she was just like thumbing her nose at the whole thing and uh, making a good living at the same time. Anyway, she ended up leaving 1971 to look after her ailing mother and never ended up um, coming back to Toronto. There was talk about her coming back in the late 2010s, 2017-18. Unfortunately, she passed away around that time. Mm. So the Inspire Award was given in 2019. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, such a beautiful testament to a life that was dedicated to making our city more beautiful through, um, you know, what she wore, how she presented herself um, through her music, but also how we understand gender. Um, so that one really, really moves me, and I'm really glad it's front and center in our reading room so I can look at it every day. She was born in 1950, I think, in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but the minute she came to Canada, she just 
and especially Toronto, she immediately felt at home. So she uh, famously quoted, you can't choose where you're born, but you can choose where you live. Mm -hmm. And she chose Toronto. So, um, But my second one is maybe a little more practical, but um, we have the uh, small collection of the gay Toronto gay action group, which was um, one of these early kind of community groups that started from the homophile associations but they kind of represent the move towards something that's much more political much more action oriented much more challenging of societal norms but they were instrumental in putting together uh the we demand march which happened on august 25th 1971 in ottawa and there was a parallel march that happened in vancouver but on the steps of parliament hill charlie hill an early activist was able to read out the 10 demands that they made which essentially were asking for basic human rights the bar is on the floor, and yet some people had to dig mm -hmm. under that bar mm -hmm. just yeah. to prove a yeah. point. Yeah. But and also to critique, the, you know, in 1969, uh, Pierre Trudeau famously quipped that the state has no place in the bedroom of uh, the community of, you know, average yeah. Canadians. But um, what the queer community was finding that this has really done very little to improve our standing. In fact, the surveillance of sex between men increased after 1969. So it was a really landmark moment, not only for the 2S LGBTQ plus community, but for all of us as Canadians. And no one knows about this. <laughs> so we diligently preserved this. And I should just say that um, a couple of weeks ago, I had a grade six student email us and say, I'm doing research on the We Demand March. And I want to find primary documents because I'm going to try and recreate the original speech that Charlie Hill made. Grade six. And um, he actually even asked whether he could personally interview Charlie Hill. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful. And it was so moving for me to be able to actually pull out the original documents to find all the different drafts that were put together and then actually find the original speech that Charlie Hill held in his hands on August 25th, 1971, when he read it out. Um, and then to know that that work of these early activists is inspiring our new generation is through primary documents um, is really quite a moving process. So, this, yeah. I think, has been uh, one of the biggest struggles for at least on based on my experience, both being in the queer community, mm -hmm. working with teens and youth in various mm -hmm. degrees, and also the history major in me must come mm -hmm. out, is how easy it is for a younger generation to not get the full grasp of history. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand, like, it, it's a lot. It's an mm -hmm. awful lot, and most adults don't know just how deep it goes. But like knowing so many teenagers and young people that don't know just like how mm -hmm. scary some things were and how terrifying yeah. some things were and how beautiful some things were yeah. and the fact that yeah. they're learning about themselves and each mm -hmm. other and growing and exploring that's the same stuff that's been going on for the past mm -hmm. millennia and it's mm -hmm. 
beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And they don't have to do it alone. They've yes. had generations before doing it as well. Yes, and to never take that for granted, the, the, you know, the rights that we feel we have today. Um, they were hard, hard fought for, um, hard won, but they are very ephemeral, you they, know? Um, it, it is so easy to lose them, mm. and we see this with much of queer history. Yes, I objectively, I think mm. you and I will say that, you know, compared to, you know, in 1945, mm -hmm. today is better, yeah, yeah. but it can go wrong so quickly. Yeah, yeah. and so it, that, that's so critical that we do preserve the the um, documentation of these early activist groups, even these homophile associations, which, you know, nowadays people kind of look at maybe derisively as, oh, they were just, you know, placating to cis-normative culture. But they were activists, and they were working against incredible odds um, to try and create rights within their community. So we need to learn from these early activists so that we can then see how we can use these in our new environment where we're trying to decolonize society to create a, a greater diversity, equity, inclusivity. And, you know, through the archives, we're trying to actively um, explore these new directions. Last year, two years ago, we did um, a collection analysis. Around 68% of the collection, I think, um, uh, covers cisgendered white men. <laughs> Is this really uh, the only voices yeah. in our community? So we realized we've been relying perhaps too heavily on passive donations, waiting for people to donate to us. We need to start getting out in the community and uh, start working with BIPOC communities, um, two-spirited, um, and to set up those networks so that they feel they can trust us and they can then donate their collections to help us make our collection more diverse, more equitable, more representative of our communities. So yeah, we can't rest on our laurels and we need to start looking actively at how we can better represent our community. It, it is, I think, the biggest struggle and at the same time, it's gonna be a fantastic challenge over mm -hmm. the next bit. Yeah. And I'm wondering, if you have any ideas and like what what would be on your wish list if there's something that could be donated oh my goodness that is really incredible um i would love to see um us getting the personal collections of um the the kind of founders of the zami group so in the 1980s zami started as kind of a social group, um, they had potluck dinners. Um, Makeda Silvera, uh, who's a no notable publisher um, and one of the representatives in our national portrait collection, which is a great initiative, but I'll talk about that later. Um, so through these potlucks, they ended up becoming political because food always makes things political, you know? <laughs> and they actually were able to build sort of, um, you know, kind of a, a civil rights movement within the queer community in the 1980s. Um, we have a lot of material from Douglas Stewart, who was heavily involved in that as well. But I, I would love if we could build this collection that represented that phenomena on Deuce and Street, 
more more um, viscerally, you know, more tangibly. Um, we've collected all the publications of Makeda Silvera's Sister Vision Press. Uh, we have vertical files on Makeda and Doug Stewart and uh, Dusan Street, where we've collected like you know news clippings, pamphlets, flyers, posters. But yeah, I would love us to be able to kind of represent the zeitgeist of that moment in time more meaningfully through um, primary documents and that sort of thing. So that would be my goal. But, you know, we've uh, some of the recent donations that we've had have just been landmark. Um, so we got uh, Rupert Raj's personal collections. He's one of the first um, people in Canada to fully transition. And um, in the process, he pretty well contacted every hospital and doctor throughout North America, if not the world, who was offering gender reassignment um, services and carefully collected and preserved the responses. It's such an incredible treasure trove of information on the healthcare system in the 70s and 80s. Um, so that's been a real, and, and that collection is used on a monthly basis. Uh, we also were able to get the collection of Marie, uh, Mirha Soleil Ross, who's a transgendered um, artist, performance artist, and sex worker. And her collection is just so representative of, you know, allowing the transgender community to really find you know they're kind of their 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 histories through you know Rupert Raj's collection and Mira Soleil Ross's um you know they're able to kind of see themselves yes. through these um activists and artists and people that just were so you know brilliant <laughs> You know, the one of the joys and the challenges of working as an archive is that we have to capture history as it's happening. And in a way, we can't really be judgmental about it. Uh, there's a lot of material in our collection that is very contentious and challenging. Um, uh, and I, I don't know, is it our role to censor that? Yeah. Um, or to capture it so that researchers can look at these documents and then um, make sense yeah. of them. So. Especially as we have seen that people will shift the goalposts on mm -hmm. what is considered mm -hmm. contentious. Yes. And it's one thing for us yeah. to say actively, you know, this yeah. thing was actively harming, yeah. hurting, physically harming yeah. people. And then now yeah. with a slight rise in sort of a little bit more purity mm -hmm. culture, does mm -hmm. the pride parade require nudity? Does mm -hmm. this require like us yeah. using various, like having someone who would call themselves a, was now a slur, yeah. but that was what they were mm -hmm. called back in the day mm -hmm. yeah. that I will not say on a church yeah. podcast, so. but yeah. do we, do we censor that because yeah. that's considered offensive now and yeah. today? Like, this is part I mean, of the... <laughs> yeah, it is challenging because, I mean, up until 1969, you know, being gay or lesbian was illegal. So actually having a collection like ours would be, you know, illegal. It would you be a very large evidence box. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
Um, and, you know, throughout our history, we've had a, 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 such a contentious relationship with authorities. In 1977, uh, the Body Politic Office, which was co-located with the Lesbian and Gay Archives, um, was raided by the police. They carted away 12 boxes of archival materials um, that we had to fight tooth and nail to get back. Uh, it was only until 1983 that we were actually able to get these documents back. Wow. So, um, you know, this actual physical erasure was attempted by the police force. Um, we realized after that point that we needed to separate from the body politics and create, kind of create our own institution. So that happened in 78. Um, and then uh, we sought charitable to consider ourselves as a charitable organization. Originally, that was denied by the um, Office of Consumer and Commercial... Well, I'm just looking at my notes for the exact... Ministry of Consumer and Commercial Relations on the grounds that because our archive was not affiliated with the church or with a, pu a public body or a corporation, that we could not call ourselves... Un a, ch a charitable organization so we yeah. fought that one we won it <laughs> then when it came to you know being able to actually through revenue canada call ourselves an organ a charitable organization we again faced that censure um and it was only through the dedication of many of the archivists working here at the time first and foremost james fraser who um, our library is named in honor of him. Uh, he was able to get us charitable status in 1981, first organization in Canada to receive that. Um, he tragically passed away in 1984 as a result of the AIDS epidemic, but you know he's an example of the people that built this place and made it to what it is today, which is one of the largest in the world. And goes to show that as much as we need protests mm -hmm. and as much as we need marches, as much as we need like the active on the ground mm -hmm. people being angry, we also have people that are able to navigate the horrors of Canadian government bureaucracy. Yes, yeah. And be able to do that with yeah. patience and yeah. do that with mm -hmm. a degree of tactfulness and diligence mm -hmm. that allows this place to be preserved mm -hmm. so that it is a permanent fixture that yeah, the government yeah. will not be knocking on your door and yeah. saying actually we're taking all of yeah, this because this yeah. needs to be censored and yeah, that so, itself yeah like just knowing your allies how to um structure yourself you know people are constantly saying to us oh why don't you join with the university it'll make your life so much easier but will it um you know what happens if we became a branch of the government you know um there is there are merits to being able to maintain your own independent voice and listening to your community and building the archive based on what they're saying what their needs are now it was at this point in the interview i had to stop for a moment Ken Delisle is a diaconal minister, and John Robertson was an ordained minister both in the UCC. They were married in 1978 in a ceremony in Winnipeg. And while this marriage was not legally recognized, the entire community around them supported them. When the UCC allowed openly gay lesbian ministers to serve in 1988, they signed up and became, amongst all their other accomplishments, one of the first openly gay clergy couples in the UCC. 
Yeah. It, it, this is the, so I was looking at this because yeah. this was the event that my uncle, you gotta, the, when oh, you okay. squint tilt your head to the side, he and his husband ran this. Oh, this was the, my God. one of That's the first beautiful. major AGMs. And yeah. so he and his husband in Winnipeg just spent like the past, mm. like spent 30 years taking oh. care of the queer community as oh the first ordained clergy couple oh, in the UCC. Brilliant. And yeah. like, it is the kind of stuff that mm-hmm. we could easily brush aside as a neat little fact. And mm-hmm. at the same time, like they were denied jobs. They mm-hmm. were denied, oh, yeah. like they yeah. were denied communities. They, yeah. it is nothing short of a miracle that their families yeah. said, yeah. no, we support and love yeah. them. Yeah. And here's just yeah. a neat little flyer yeah. from yeah. Like I was about old. This is yeah. It's it it is moving when you see these things that were held by people actually at the time. It's like you're coming face to face with history. Yes. So yeah, that affirmed national conference um, uh, flyer is uh, in our vertical file collection. But at the same time, we then have the affirm United Church AGM um, program in our periodical collection. I, so I, I'm just even to... opening these up where, like, you see the difference between, like, here, mm-hmm. like, this is what I think of, like, <laughs> LGBTQ, and not even two-spirited, because that was still, yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. we were still figuring out what was going on, but, like, the beginning of the Elizabethan gay community, like, this is what I imagine, mm-hmm. like, on a typewriter, yeah. you have Comic Sans, there's, like, yeah. the font sizes, there's a copyright mm-hmm. person out there breaking out into hives right now because yeah, of how ridiculous yeah. it is. Yeah. And yeah. then we compare it to the conference mm-hmm. format here, where it is, this is the type of bulletin, bulletin that you would see in churches today, yes. where you have the logo, yeah. it's all in uh, Times New Roman, you yeah. have like a very specific and formulaic system which makes it easy to read and is part of the Mm -hmm. like but you could see just like over the course of eight years how it started as still quite radical Mm -hmm. it was only three years Mm -hmm. after uh gay and lesbian ministers Mm -hmm. were allowed to be open Mm -hmm. and it has now become more and more integrated Mm -hmm. oh john robertson yeah no that's him rainbow ministry oh gosh that's amazing Oh, so... And, oh, I, Ken, that's his husband, Ken. Oh, gosh. <sighs> Take a picture of that. Oh, my God. <laughs> John's brother is married to my aunt, and seeing their names in the archives, knowing that they would be a part of queer history and preserved there for as long as the archives exist, it became a really moving moment. The vote changed an awful lot right. of stuff. And now right. you I meant that when we were talking about same-sex marriage mm-hmm. here in Canada... Yeah. You had people that didn't know how they felt, but they said, my minister is gay mm. Mm. and he's cool. Yeah. So we're doing it. Yeah. Like, ah, oh. yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it, it shows the power of these, you know, primary documents where just contact with this one document leads to stories, you know, wow. and I think that's the ultimate goal of why we do what we do. I'm wondering if you have any final comments or things that you would like to share with. Oh, just come in and get to know us, uh, celebrate us. We really uh, want to become the pill- one of the pillars of our community. Um, we're collecting our 
histories and through that we are building our histories so um yeah make us part of your daily life yes. and if you're going on a first date <laughs> bring them to the archives <laughs> that sounds very romantic yes. and the perfect way to okay. end this nice thank, very good thank you so much oh that was fun thank you so much to daniel payne for his work and for his time with me for this interview You can learn more about the archives or book your own appointment to visit them at archives.ca. That is A-R-Q-U-I-V-E-S dot C-A. The Rooster Crows is a production from Lawrence Park Community Church, a United Church of Canada congregation up here in northern Toronto. You can listen to other episodes on all major podcast streaming services. And for more information about LPCC, the Rooster Crow, and us, check us out at Lawrence Park Church. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Roberta Howie, and until next time, happy pride.